If you have your Bibles with you, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Matthew chapter 5. Our primary text this morning is going to be verses 17 through 20. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this moment once again. Thank you for your word. May your spirit do its work on our souls. God, may you draw us closer into you. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen. What would you consider to be an impossible task? You know, I asked this question on a Facebook post, and, and some of the answers that I got were kind of uh, funny. Uh, so licking my own elbow, uh, that was one. So uh, how many of you, as soon as I said that, you're thinking about trying right now to see if that's possible? Uh, so um, how about me? And this is some other ones, right? Some are funny, like the Browns winning the Super Bowl. That's an impossible task. Uh, so uh, some not so funny, right? Making myself beautiful, perfect, and sinless. Staying positive 100% of the time, being perfect, changing myself, restoring a relationship with an abusive parent, trying to control the behavior of others, trying to help people see life through somebody else's eyes. These are all tasks that people said that when they thought about something that was impossible, these are things that came uh, to their minds. In our passage of scripture this morning, Jesus gives us what I believe sounds like to be an impossible task. It's one of those verses that when you read it, or part, it's one verse, part of the passage, that when you read it, it's kind of like, okay, I hear what you're saying, Lord, but how is this even possible? Are you giving us something to, to try to attain to that we can never grasp, never reach? And, and so let me read, let me read our text this morning, and then we'll come back and, and break it apart. Jesus said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches others uh, and, and teaches them uh, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Did you see the impossible task? It's that very last verse. He says, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds, abounds, goes beyond that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. And so then we've got to uh, come to an understanding or try to figure out who these guys were. If our righteousness needs to exceed theirs, then, then let's get an understanding of who they are. Well, the scribes, they're, they're what's known as the religious lawyers, the experts in the law. Some people believe that the scribes and the Pharisees were, were of the same group, scribes being a little bit more experts, the, the Pharisees being the ones that upheld uh, the law. Uh, who were the Pharisees? They were men who were known. Actually, the, the word gets an idea of one who set apart. Uh, they, they had very little, political, very little political clout in their time. They were known for strict adherence, not only to the law of Moses, but the oral traditions that were attached to the law of Moses. And for the average Jewish person of that day, the Pharisee was someone to look up to, a, a standard of living that they needed to ascribe to, to try to hold. And so when they, when they saw these people, they were somewhat like the heroes of faith. 
And so Jesus comes along and these heroes of faith are now at odds with this religious teacher. And he looks at people listening to him. I believe it's his disciples right now kind of pulled apart. Some people think it's a much larger crowd at this point. And let's just pretend, think, see him talking to his 12 disciples right now. Them sitting there and him saying, listen, guys, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your righteousness has to exceed the religious experts, the scribes, the lawyers, and the Pharisees, those guys who walk around and make everyone else uphold the law. It sounds like an impossible task. And so then we think about the law. What is the law? We have to answer that question next, right? Uh, uh, for the Jewish mindset, the law could have been a number of things. It could have been the first five books of the Old Testament, known as the Pentateuch. And, and for the Sadducees, this is what the law uh, would have been. It could have been uh, the, the law and the prophets, as Jesus says, the entire Old Testament. Or for the, the Pharisees, it was the law, the first five books, and then the oral traditions that were attached on top of that. Uh, some people only believe the law included the Ten Commandments that were spoken or given by God through the hand of Moses to the people of Israel. And so this is the law that he's saying that it has to exceed these things, right? So they had to exceed the righteousness, keep the law of what these people were seeking to do. And so remember, the Bible was written by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through men, the hands of men that were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were writing to certain situations. And in this case, they were, they, they were writing, or, or Jesus was sharing theological truths to people who would just be scared to death at this point. I try to put myself in the position of the, of the disciples right now, thinking, okay, uh, I'm supposed to be better than Nicodemus? Uh, I'm supposed to be better than Gamaliel? Uh, I'm supposed to be better than these schools uh, of these teachers? And so, so let's unpack the context of what's taking place here. Jesus declared that he came to fulfill the law and the prophets. This is, it's an interesting way to lead into this discussion. What Jesus would have caused them to think is that he was abolishing the law, right? And for some reason, this is what took place. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, verses 23 and 24. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons and those having seizures and paralytics. He healed them. It could be that Jesus was pointing forward to what he would be doing, right? When he said, don't think that I've come to abolish the law. Well, the prophets, actually, I've come to fulfill them, to fill them full. Now, when you see me healing on a Sabbath, when my disciples don't fast, when my disciples pick the heads of grain on a Sabbath, when my disciples don't wash their hands, when I gather together with sinners, don't say that I have broken a law. Right? That's the interesting thing here. Jesus was accused of being a lawbreaker over and over and over again. But our Bibles tell us that he wasn't. We'll read that verse here in a little bit. So how could they accuse him of breaking the law? Well, what they did, and this is a mistake that we make all the time, they took oral traditions or, or what they thought might, God might want and put them right alongside God's word, right? And this is how they did it, right? The Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath. So now we have to define what work is on the Sabbath. 
And so they come up with these ridiculous regulations and pass them along. They would actually string a string away from their house so that they could only walk so far away from their house on a Sabbath. Uh, and, and even so much so, there were regulations as to how many times they could scrub their teeth and not break the law for the work. Not making this up. And so Jesus comes along and he begins to heal on the Sabbath. Or, and it's amazing to me what they accused him of. And he says, no, no, I, I haven't come to, to break the law. I, I've come to fill the law full. He would be in a constant attack on their understanding of keeping the law and holding others accountable to do so. And at this point in the ministry of Jesus, there was no mention of the law of Moses. There was only the mention of the, uh, of the teacher of the law. There was also no mention of a teacher of the law that he ascribed to. He was his own source of authority. And so Jesus, remember, he's already pointed, and we've went through this, right? He says, blessed is the one who's poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who mourns. Blessed is the meek soul. Blessed is the one who hungers and thirsts after righteousness. Blessed is the merciful one, the pure of heart, the peacemaker. Blessed is the person who will experience persecution for following me. And in the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees, to be blessed was to be faithful to the law and the oral traditions. And so someone like Jesus shows up on the scene following the ministry of John the Baptist, and they get nervous. Why? Well, the way of the Pharisees was going to pass away. The way of grace was going to be ushered in. You, you know, I, I, I've been accused sometimes of focusing too much on grace. I've even actually had people say, you know, preacher, if, if you keep talking about grace so much, people are going to think that they can just go and do whatever sin they want. Kind of like the little poem, free from the law, O blessed condition, I can sin as I please and still have remission. The fact is, the fact is, is this, this is just a misunderstanding of the purpose of the law. It's a misunderstanding of the application of grace, too, in the life of a follower of Christ. Where did this misunderstanding come from? It came from the practice of placing the oral traditions right alongside the law of God. And anytime we add to God's word, we put ourselves in a position to be sinful, right? to break his word and his law. John Newton, the converted slave trader and author of the hymn Amazing Grace, was also an outstandingly wise correspondent with many of his own contemporaries who sought his spiritual counsel. In one of his letters, he wrote this, Ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. Fact is, might not be the most popular thing to say. I'm not a fan of posting the Ten Commandments. And the reason I'm not a fan of posting the Ten Commandments is because we fail to post the punishment that comes from breaking them. Because the fact of the matter is when we look at the Ten Commandments, it doesn't take us too long to get through those Ten Commandments before we have to start raising our hands and declaring, yes, I'm a sinner. I've broken that one. I'm guilty of that. This is the purpose of the law. And Jesus declared, he said, listen, I have come to fulfill the law. So let's look at some ways Jesus fulfilled that. In a book, uh, Sinclair Ferguson points out a few ways, and I'm borrowing his outline here. He, he said, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets and his doctrine and his teaching. The oral traditions weaken the power of the law. And in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, we're going to dig this apart a little bit more, where Jesus says, you have heard that it was said not to murder, but I say unto you not to call your brother a fool. You have heard it was said not to commit adultery, but I say unto you not to lust after someone who's not your spouse. You have heard that it was said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce, but I say unto you, an eye for an eye, you've heard it said, but I say unto you, 
Love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but I say unto you. Jesus is going to fulfill the law and the prophets in his teaching and his doctrine. Second thing, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets in his deed and his lifestyle. The real meaning of the law really is this. If we're going to follow that, it's to delight, to delight in the will of God. Psalm chapter 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. John chapter 4, Jesus said, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. And, and although they would consistently try to declare that Jesus was a lawbreaker, the only thing that Jesus was truly guilty of was not submitting to their authority, not bowing down to their oral traditions. Hebrews chapter 4, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet was without sin. The writer of Hebrews could not write that if Jesus was indeed a lawbreaker. Jesus ultimately fulfills the law and the prophets through his death on the cross. Uh, like many who undertake the reading of God's word, I used to get bogged down in the second half of Exodus and the, and the book of Leviticus. But now, as I begin to dig those books apart year after year, I'm seeing them in a fresh new light and perspective. Because as I see and hear God's standards and see his sacrificial system that he puts into place, I'm reminded over and over that I don't meet God's standards and that in the law of Moses, neither did they. And God put in, the, in place this sacrificial system that year after year they could have their sins atoned for and dealt with until the next year. This was what the Day of Atonement was. It took place once a year when the high priest would offer a sacrifice for his sins and then the sins of the people. If you want a better understanding of that, go back and read Leviticus 16. But as you read Leviticus 16, think about these words from Hebrews chapter 10. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, they would not have ceased to be offered. Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sin, but in these sacrifices there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. What the writer of Hebrews is declaring is that every time we come to this day of atonement, every time the high priest enters in, it's a reminder of his sins and of your sins. But listen, this is a picture of God's grace too because he gave them this sacrificial system that they could rely upon and be in right standing with him underneath the law. Verses 11 through 14. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified. So we know what the writer of Hebrews is declaring, right? Jesus offered himself on the sac a sacrifice on the cross, was buried in the grave, resurrected from that grave three days later, ascended into heaven, and is now seated at the right hand of God where there is no more need of a physical sacrifice for our sins. Jesus fulfilled the law by dying on the cross. Romans chapter 8, verses 2 and 4. Through four. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in the Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
Look at verse 3. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his son in the likeness of sinful flesh for sin. He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Jesus did what the law was powerless to do. Does that mean that the law of Moses was powerless? No. No, it just means that our understanding of the law of Moses is wrong. As followers of Christ, we're never supposed to point back to that law and say, well, there's a theoretical possibility that if we could keep the law of Moses, that we could be in right relationship with God. No, there's not. The Bible, the word of God takes away that theoretical possibility when it says these words, for by works of law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. You see, as we understand God's law, his word, and it's unpacked to us and we get into this and then we look at ourselves, we treat this like a mirror and we see our lives in this mirror. We understand, man, I'm broken, blessed are the poor in spirit. My sin separated me from God. Blessed are those who mourn. There's nothing I can do other than trust Christ. Blessed are the meek. From this standpoint, I just need to chase after righteousness for the rest of my life. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Man, it's amazing. Paul shared his journey in coming to this understanding in Romans chapter 7. He says, what then shall we say? Uh, that the law is sin by no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. And Ernie, I want to say, one of the, every time I read this verse, I think about your Sunday school class in the basement when this, like this light popped on for me in that verse. So, I was once alive apart from the law. When the commandment came, sin came to life and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. So Jesus fulfills the law uh, through dying on the cross. And, and lastly, Jesus fulfills the law and the prophets by sending the Holy Spirit. Jesus declared to his disciples that the Holy Spirit would be sent and he would. As you, I think you guys see, I love to put a lot of verses and I'm purposely trying to leave them out so I don't preach for three hours. Uh, the Bible declares that, that the Holy Spirit would come and convict the world of sin. The Bible declares that the Holy Spirit would give the followers of Christ words to speak while under trial. The Bible declares that the Holy Spirit will bring all things to remembrance to those disciples what Jesus had spoken to them. The Bible declares that the Holy Spirit will bear, bear witness to our souls that we belong to the Father. The Bible declares the Holy Spirit will guide us into all truth. Jesus died upon the cross, was placed in a grave, resurrected from the grave, and gave Gave the promise that the Holy Spirit would come. John chapter 16, verse 7. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go away, I will send him. 
There are prophets in the Old Testament that speak about the Holy Spirit. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the very kind of first things of prophecy that's fulfilled about Jesus. But, but in Jeremiah and Ezekiel, there are prophecies about this coming Holy Spirit. And, and the verses are up there. Write them down and go read these in context. But, but Ezekiel chapter 26, verse 26 and 27, he says, I'll give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Did you see what God said there through the prophet? He said, listen, I'm, I'm going to give you this spirit. And once you have this spirit inside of you, controlling you, those very things that you think are impossible, he's going to help you do. Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So much more could be declared about that. But listen, Jesus came. When he came, he fulfilled the law and the prophets completely. Second lesson that I think we should grab from this is this. Jesus tells, us, tells them that their righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. The, the notes will say Pharisees. Verse 19 says, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. When you seek to uphold the law, it points out one reality. It's this, and we're sinful. Romans 3.20, go back. Memorize that verse. Know what it says. When we seek to teach others the law, it will ultimately point them to their need for the cross. And talking to his disciples there on the mount and possibly others who could hear, Jesus affirmed the need of the people of Israel to do and to teach the law. Why? Why? If it's impossible, why? So they would know of their need of a Savior. So that every time they were confronted with the truth of God's word and the truth of God's law, it would place them, they would place themselves in a position to surrender to the gospel of Christ after he died, was buried, and resurrected again. And the moment that Jesus declared it is finished is the moment the sacrificial system was completed. And why did that system exist? Well, to deal with sin. Jesus dealt with it once and for all. And their chase after keeping the law would point them to their need for Christ. They would understand after Jesus was died, buried, and raised again, they would understand this, that Jesus was the fulfillment of the law, that he was the sacrifice for their sin, and that he was the giver of the Holy Spirit. And for the disciples, they were told to wait in Jerusalem. And on the day of Pentecost, the Lord sent the Spirit upon the disciples, and the world was forever changed. So now that we have this background. So what for us? What does the law have to do with the Christian today? How do we reconcile these words with us and apply them to our lives today? And so does anyone else cringe when you hear those words, when you try to apply them to yourselves? For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So let's put that together with Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That challenge right there is difficult enough. It's difficult enough. Right? The scribes and the Pharisees chased after it. The, the, the people of God would chase after it. And let's put that challenge together with the words of Jesus and a, and a couple of other verses. 
Listen to what Jesus is going to say. We'll go over it. Let the words weigh down on your soul. Be perfect. Be perfect. Therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. As obedient children, the Apostle Peter writes through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. How do those words sit in your soul? A phrase that I thought of a few years ago reading scriptures as I'm just being transparent in front of you right now, there are times that those very words and verses scare hell right into me. It becomes a reality of something missing in me and my walk with Christ. My guess is this, if you're here this morning or will one time watch or listen to this message, you're at least interested in chasing after this idea. There's something in you that you know you need. There's also the other side of this battle. When you're confronted with the truth of God's word and the challenge to live righteously and to chase holiness, it elicits fears in your soul. Maybe you've tried and you've been challenged by a well-meaning loved one to forsake a sin and to live the right way and come to God. So you gave it your best effort. You've experienced some success for a little while. And, and instead of looking to God, you, you've looked inside and said, man, look at me. Look at how well I've been able to overcome this for this long. And then one day, there it is again like an unwanted friend returning to torture you along with those words. My hope is that you'll leave here this morning filled with some hope to walk through this challenge for the rest of your life. And so let's, let's get to that point of hope and, and apply this for, to us today. It is true, when confronted with God's law and His Word, we realize that we are sinners. We realize that we are sinners. So, and this is one of the things I want you to hear, no matter who stands in this pulpit or where you hear somebody preach from. Anytime a preacher preaches about sin, the preacher realizes their own sin and knows that they're a sinner as well. We're sinners. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So, your righteous and holy grandma, she was a sinner. Your well-meaning co-worker that keeps pointing you to their, your need for Christ is a sinner. Your parents that have challenged you to get back into church, they have sinned. Mother Teresa, she sinned. Billy Graham, he sinned. Your preacher, he sinned. Your elders, they have sinned. So we've got to remember what's the primary purpose of pointing out the standard. So when we hold this book up and we treat it as a mirror and it begins to challenge who we are into our souls, when we see what it's pointing out, what we do next is important. Because it's going to constantly and consistently point out that, that God's standards and my standard are very much separated, no matter how hard I try, no matter how hard I fight through. So what do we do? Once confronted with the reality of our sin, we take it to Christ. We take it to Him. Remember. Remember what His Word says. The fact that we don't measure up should not put us in a position to throw our hands up and give up. No, it places us in the very position that we need to be, a position to accept through faith what Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. This is, that's the point of the most important paragraph in the whole Bible. 
I'll probably say that a few times a year, what the most important paragraph I believe is in the Bible. It's Romans chapter 3, verses 21 through 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a really big word there that just simply means a covering by his blood, to be received by faith. This was to show God righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus so when we're confronted with our sin and we're confronted with the reality that no matter how hard we try we cannot keep a system of law that will make us right with God it puts us in that perfect position to put our faith and trust in Christ and to surrender to him so we believe that we're sinners and it falls short. We confess Jesus Christ not to be the Savior of our life alone, but to be Lord. And you know what a Lord is? Lord is ruler. Lord is one we submit to. He speaks and we do our best to listen and do. We repent and repentance is turning back to God. We submit ourselves to Christian baptism. Jesus both modeled and commanded baptism as a response of faith. And then we chase, we chase, we chase after holiness. I know there are many in the room that are smarter than me. And the fact that I typed that sentence out right that way, I think is wrong grammar. Maybe not. I don't know. Just not that smart with that. That declare we are to live the Christian life. What does the Christian life look like? For me, it looks like chasing after holiness. For me, it looks like falling down and getting back up. The best news, the best news is we don't chase alone. And this is that last Lesson. When we surrender our lives to Christ, God gives us his Holy Spirit to join us in our chase for holiness. To join us in our chase for holiness. There are so many verses that I want to read right now. I'm going to read a lot. John chapter 7, whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit has not been given, because Jesus had not yet been glorified. Ephesians chapter 1, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. After that sermon, Peter was asked, what shall we do? And he said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. God does not leave us as orphans as we chase holiness, what he calls us to. Don't just take my word for it. Get into this book and read and see what he promises to us. Like to the Apostle Paul, who declared in Romans chapter 7, you know, those things I want to do, some people ask, is he talking about the law or the Christian life? And to which I always reply, yes. He's talking about that. The things I want to do, I don't do those things. And, and the things I don't want to do, these are the things that I keep doing. And then he speaks these words, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. 
He goes on to say, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's where he goes into Romans chapter 8, verses 2 through 4, where God did through Christ what the law was powerless to do. Not only does God rescue us and not leave us alone, he fills us with his spirit. The most important chapter and the most important book of the Bible. Chapter 8, he declares these words, verses 9 through 11. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Did you see what he said there? I think it's a little tricky because I think sometimes we take these verses and we apply them to heaven. He says he gives life to our mortal bodies. This flesh that we carry around, those struggles that we walk through. Verse 13, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Thinking about this for a moment, God through Jesus Christ not only became the covering of our sins, God through his Holy Spirit has become the very source of power that gives us the ability to exceed the righteousness of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because it's not our righteousness, it's his. And we're trusting in him and surrendering to him through that process. This past week, I tried to think of an illustration that would kind of bring all of this home. And um, do you remember the name Derek Redman? Anybody remember the name Derek Redman? So Derek Redman was a sprinter for um, the United Kingdom in 1992. So he lined up uh, to begin his race and the race started off well. And uh, shortly after that race started, uh, his hamstring popped and he fell to the ground and then he got back up and he started skipping to the finish line. And uh, well, hey Tom, go ahead and just go ahead and play that video. See, our chase after righteousness is much like this. We start off in a sprint, right? And we think everything's going well. We give our lives to Christ. We surrender to Him. We're baptized. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. And then we begin and we're running, right? We think that run is going to go smooth and we're going to cross the finish line with no issues. But something happens. We stumble. We fall. We at times believe that our Christian walk is over. Then we remember a few promises from God's word where he declares, behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Where he declares, for this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. Where he declares, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Where he declares, you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Where he declares, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Down later, knowing all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor the present things, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord.
So we stumble, we fall. God not only saves us through Christ, he not only empowers us to live by his spirit, but God's word and his spirit, they carry us through. They carry us through to the finish line. It's not a perfect race. It's not a perfect sprint. It's a stumble and a fall and a resubmitting and resurrendering our lives over and over to a God who doesn't leave us alone. So when he says, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees, no longer should that put fear in our souls. What it should do is it should cause us to thank God for what he's done for us through Jesus Christ more and more and more. Have you stumbled? Have you allowed that fall to snatch the joy of following Christ away from your life? Christian friend, if this is you, if this is you right now, confess your sin to Christ. Repent of that sin. Stand up and start that chase again. And no, you're not running alone. He's there running with you. If you've yet to give your life to Christ and you've tried all this on your own, realize right now that your brokenness is a gift from God that puts you in a position to let you know you need him. You need him. Believe in Jesus Christ. Repent and turn toward him. Confess him to be the Lord of your life. Submit to Christian baptism and start that chase and knowing you'll never run alone. Let me pray for us.